So let's work on uh, question seven uh, together. And uh, let's talk about guilt uh, biblically. <clears throat> and uh, then the first part says to define guilt biblically. The second says, uh, is false guilt a biblical concept? And how do you deal with guilt in the context of counseling? So in this one question, really here, we've got uh, three different things going on. So let's, uh, let's look at the first one, to define uh, guilt uh, biblically, then we'll go on to false guilt, and then we'll talk about how to do guilt uh, in the uh, context of counseling. Um, there you'll see uh, a quote, true guilt has only one cause, and that is sin. And that's from uh, uh, Counseling, How to Counsel Biblically, from, uh, edited by MacArthur. And here's the definition. True guilt is a God-produced emotion when our conscience is stirred to warn us that we have fallen short or violated the will of our gracious and just God. All right. So, uh, now, painful and at times to be uh, appears to be too heavy for us to bear this guilt that we have. But by the kindness of God, this is, this is good. Now, uh, you might wonder, how can he say that? Take, for example, that I come, I come to your house and uh, you, have one of those, uh, you have one of those stove tops uh, that doesn't have the circular range or the gas coming up. It's one of those that looks, looks like a countertop. You know, the, there's a stove top that just looks like a countertop. And uh, I just think it's the countertop. And I go ahead and put my hand on top of it. Well, uh, I am actually really thankful that I get pain fast because I move my hand. Because if I left my hand there, it would destroy my hand. And so I'm glad for those feelings that happen so that uh, you don't have destruction in your body. Actually, that's what leprosy is. Leprosy is not a disease that eats, eats away with some infection in the skin of your body. It's that you have lost feeling in your extremities, your foot, hands, things like that, usually first, and uh, you're not feeling when you're walking on something that's cutting your foot. You're not feeling when you've touched something that's too hot and is burning up your, your fingers. And so you're, you become disfigured about it. And so that is, is good that we have those kind of feelings. And so the corrective measure can be taken. The same thing is about true guilt. God uses it to painfully warn us that something in our lives is desperately wrong. And correction, corrective action needs to be taken immediately. All right, so that's what true guilt is. And you can read, we'll talk a little bit more at the end of this question, but a lot of true guilt talking about, make a note of Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Those are places where uh, finally David was awakened to and had true feelings of guilt to recognize, man, what I am doing is just 
rotten, and I need to confess and repent and to realize what my sin is. So, but let's talk about false guilt. False guilt here uh, has, has two main areas that it can come from. Uh, the first one, let me talk about, if you go back to your notes in Fundamentals of Biblical Counseling Material, the term often used by those from a Freudian perspective, they talk about a person having a false guilt. It's not a biblical concept. And the definition that uh, people from a Freudian point of view use is it's negative feeling one has from something that is causing a battle be- within a person between his id and his superego. And so there's this battle going on between these uh, aspects of their personality and it's creating this guilt feeling. Well, if you're from a Freudian perspective, you're, you would say that these guilt feelings are really uh, false and they're really uh, truncating your life. And as a Freudian counselor, you would try to remove these guilt feelings. Uh, they view them as false and their existence only serves to be detrimental to them experiencing true reality. Now, for us, when it comes to this kind of false guilt, we would say this. There's no such thing as false guilt if we're talking about the Freudian definition. Since there's no real id or superego, there is no basis for false guilt, that whole concept that's being used there. All right, so Freudian people, and there aren't, I think from my understanding, talking to secular counselors and Christian counselors who are not uh, uh, biblical, that you know a lot of things that are in Freud have sort of passed away, but um, there are still some foundations going on uh, in their, their thinking. So they'll talk about uh, what's holding you up. You just have a, uh, a feeling of false guilt, and uh, we'll help you through that. Now, however, if one means by false guilt feeling guilty for wrong reasons, then yes, false guilt does exist. And there are times that you could possibly feel guilty for the wrong reasons. There's one that happens regularly. And you may be having to help an adult that has had this happen. Uh, and it, it still has repercussions when they're an adult, but it happened when they were a child. It is amazing. Uh, fortunately, I did, I did not have this situation. Uh, I grew up in an uh, unbelieving home, but a uh, very uh, stable home. So I'm very thankful to the Lord uh, for what he provided. But there are children, especially when they're uh, the younger, if they're babies, this doesn't necessarily happen. But a lot happens uh, uh, between the ages of eight through uh, early teens, that when their parents separate and have a divorce, they will often have a sense that, ooh, 
if I had just been a better child, this would not have happened in our family. And they carry this with them. Uh, and so it, this is having a sense of guilt for something that you're really not guilty of. You're not responsible for the decisions that your parents made or one of the partners in the relationship made. Yes, we all could have been better kids, but that would you're not responsible for the sin of your mother or your father, which everyone deserted the relationship. So in that case, that kind of false guilt, you may be actually helping someone to under, understand that, that they're carrying that uh, around in uh, their thinking. So you'll see in your notes here, I went to Wikipedia and uh, looked through some of the definitions on ego and id and superego and wrote those down just so you can look through, see what they are, what I was referring to, and get a, uh, get a handle uh, on that again. So you can look, look through there. But let's go to the last part of the question that was asked. Since guilt is an important warning emotion, it certainly needs to be handled in counseling. And so going back to the beginning, true guilt is very, very important. Just as when I put my hand on that hot burner, need to pay attention to. What's going to happen in counseling is that someone is having the feeling of true guilt, but they are ignoring it. And they're coming to you and they may want your help in getting rid of these guilt feelings and these other things. And what you want to do is to remind them that this true guilt feelings are really helpful. There was a, a person who came for, for counseling, and I was thinking of this person when we were talking earlier this morning about you are to have, you are to have compassion for person. And uh, this was a case where the uh, fella had been adulterous in the relationship, he was out of there, and the wife had uh, uh, said, you know, will you just do one more thing for me? Will you come to counseling? And typically he would have said no, but it must have been a weak moment, and he said yes. So you got a guy there. There's no way this guy wants to, to be here. Uh, very intelligent person, um, and uh, had been raised in a Christian home, had gone to uh, Christian school all through his uh, growing up. Fundamentally, he knew, uh, he might have known the Bible better than, than I knew it, uh, where to find, find things. Very apathetic, uh, very, uh, just very, very difficult uh, uh, to, to deal with. But he was having all these, what he didn't realize what was spiraling him down in depression was these, uh, feelings of uh, uh, true guilt and was not handling them appropriately. And it was just, uh, as it turned out, this person responded to the true guilt. Uh, and in that response to true guilt, he uh, uh, repented of his sins. Uh, actually, he was uh, um, a person in his uh, 40s and he uh, accepted Christ and uh, was actually baptized uh, here. And so it's just great to see. And uh, there was a case where it was really hard in the beginning, uh, even just liking this person that we've actually become 
uh, you know, very, very good, good friends. And uh, uh, appreciate him greatly. And uh, he and his wife have a, you know, a lovely relationship together. So, but it was this guilt aspect that was very important. So looking here, um, it, never, it never should be uh, minimal, minimalized. If someone is feeling low about themselves and desires to commit suicide, now this needs a special note. You can get people that have such true guilt, they're ready to uh, end their life. Uh, now, here, uh, do not tell them not to feel so badly about themselves, tell them that their feelings are correct and warranted considering how they've been li living. Now with suicide, the counselor should speak directly to the total inappropriateness of that action. You know, suicide, and you can speak openly about it, is actually the most selfish uh, action a person can take. You know, you leave all these people uh, uh, back. And uh, I've done uh, funerals for people who have committed suicide and they are the most difficult funerals uh, to do. Very, very challenging. Uh, not because I'm so concerned about the person who killed themselves, but I'm concerned about the people that are, that are left. The last one I did was for a young man. He was 23 years old and got his girlfriend pregnant. Some other things were happening in his life. Kills himself. Well, what about this girl? What about the child? What about what about, and just working all through uh, that. So, um, and it, I never, I never met the, I never met the person. It wasn't someone involved in counseling. So, um, so in this here, the solution to be proposed and directed by the counselor is one of repentance involving confession, receiving forgiveness, and living the new life in God's God's power. So that's how we want. Uh, to direct and work, and yes, uh, feelings sometimes can be leading us in the wrong direction, but these feelings that are coming when we, as is described in Psalm 32, where life just feels like it's wasting away, my bones are wasting away, the hand of God is heavy upon me. Those are feelings and, uh, of true guilt that we need to look at with Counsel Lee and see, you know, what and why God is allowing those feelings to occur in that person's life and uh, uh, use it as a guide for yourself as the counselor and for the counselee to see where it is they need to change in their life. Okay? All right, so to give you some idea, at least now, what in the world are they talking about with true guilt and where, where are they going with the uh, false guilt uh, uh, situation. <clears throat> All right. Now we've got uh, eclecticism. Write a paragraph or two on a problem of eclecticism and counseling and your position in reference to it. All right. Now, what do they mean by eclecticism? You don't remember them talking about this at all in fundamentals of biblical counseling. They probably did not use this word, but uh, uh, we'll talk about it here. Now, let me give you how this is defined by this fellow, uh, Bruce Naramore, and it's quoted by um, uh, Jay Adams. It says, uh, in eclecticism, by combining the practical insights of modern psychology with the lasting truths of the Bible, uh, we have a solid and balanced approach to the problems. All right, actually, that sounds 
you know, on the surface, it sounds really, really good. All right? Uh, all, all truth is God's, God's truth. And uh, psychology is a uh, science. You know, many of you probably took it as, uh, uh, had to take it. If you went to college, took a course in it. And, uh, okay, now you become a Christian. So, okay, some of the things that you were learned, learned there, you want to now combine uh, that truth with the truth of Scripture and use both of them uh, together to help people. All right, that sounds very good. And so here it says eclecticism is a temptation, a great temptation for biblical counsels. It's brought on by well-meaning Christians who want to help. You know, sometimes we talk as if the, psychi the psychiatrist, the psychologist is our, is our number one enemy. That we should not think of them as that way. They, they love people. They are, uh, I don't know that uh, uh, necessarily um, um, psychiatrists have um, taken a financial hit to help people. They usually, as MD, divs get, uh, M MD doctors, they usually get paid pretty well. But there's a lot of people who are social workers and they're uh, psychologists who really could have gone into maybe professions where they made more money, but they really care and they want to help these, these people. And so we need to be uh, gracious toward them. And some of them are believers and have adopted this kind of, of thinking. So Eclecticism proposes that when dealing with counseling issues, one is to look to the scriptures and to the common grace of God for a definition, understanding, and solution of the problem. So that sort of lays out what eclecticism is. Then it sounds good by being a way to be able to apply all of God's grace to a problem. However, uh, this contradicts what Scripture says about its role. You know, his divine power has given us everything. So please circle everything there. We need for life and godliness. So if your person is, is not living a godly life, in terms of foundational issues, we don't need to look other places than the Scripture. Everything, everything is a key word. The, foundation, the foundational understanding and the solution for the problem rising out of a correct understanding and application of the scripture. So a person have problems of the soul, where we need to look at is uh, the word of God. So we have verses like that we've become familiar with, 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. And let's look at Colossians 2, listed in your sheet there. Let's look at Colossians 2, 8 together. 2, 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Spiritual forces of the world are the ones controlled by the devil, rather than on, on Christ. So, <clears throat> see there, I've made this statement, my desired position on this problem of eclecticism is to spend much energy looking to the scripture, divine knowledge, for a well-defined foundational principle to deal with the counseling issue. It deals with the foundational principles. 
And so that doesn't mean you can't use things from the world and secular world, and we'll talk about them. You know, once the principle is fully established, then look around for any nuggets of truth that unbelievers may have unearthed that may help in the situation. I believe that this approach rightly incorporates special and common grace in their rightful roles. Remember in theology, you had a question that dealt with you know, special revelation and with general revelation, and here it is getting into practicality. Let's take an issue of anger in a counselee's life. After listening carefully to the counselee, the counselor determines that his malicious outbursts should be characterized as, as sinful uh, anger. Now, a secular counselor uh, may have defined the same behavior as the counselee just having unrealistic expectations. You know, there's really no, no sin here, no problem. They just have unrealistic ex expectations. And to help with anger management, and then we'll help that person with anger management uh, techniques. They'll reduce, you know, help this person have reduced expectations of others. Might have a, you know, for if they're really mad at someone, instead of telling them off at the office, you know, have them go home and designate a pillow on their couch and uh, with that person's name on it, sort of punch that pillow so that they get rid of that uh, frustration, you know. And uh, um, uh, this, uh, do they do this? Yes, they do this. Uh, does it have sometimes some help? Yes, it does have some help. But you basically are manipulating the, the flesh. You're not really having a radical change in, in the heart. Uh, these two understandings, secular and biblical, are not to be equally combined to provide a balanced solution to the counselee's problem. For us, dealing with anger, we want to follow what it says in Ephesians 4. The emotion comes up. We want to help that person deal with that anger in a, in a quick way. Remember, the first rule of communication is keep current with your problems and issues and help them keep current and deal with it in a way that is pleasing uh, to God. The, the biblical solution would be to uncover with the counselee the idol of the heart from which the anger uh, proceeds. And now to help in this process, we might use an anger journal. Okay? When is it that uh, you have these anger episodes? And each time you, you have one of these anger episodes uh, happen, uh, you know, record in your spiritual journal, you know, what time of the day it was and, you know, who you were talking to and what the issue was. And as you look at it, you might find that all of these people's, you know, uh, anger uh, is occurring uh, at the end of the workday. And uh, why is it always occurring there? Could it be that uh, they need some more nourishment? Are they not slept enough? Have they expended themselves too much uh, during the day? Uh, are they not managing their time well? And they've goofed off sort of in the morning and then waiting for the important things to do at the end of the day? You know, using that anger journal to help them uh, with that. So, for our counselees, we must use all of God's grace and the the hierarchy of authority given to us by God. So the important thing is that we remember that, that God's word trumps other thoughts and methods 
of helping people. That doesn't mean that we don't use other techniques, but they are not uh, foundational, and they are more of uh, techniques of gathering data and working through. We must stay uh, consistent with the Word of God. All right, so that gives you some idea what they're, what they're talking about um, uh, there. Now let's talk about uh, 9 and do this presentation level and performance level. And so for once, we're going to finish way early here, so you'll have lots of time to do some work even before, before lunch. So what basically is happening here is people will come to you, come to us, same thing uh, as one of us might need some counseling. And there's no, there's no shame in coming to counseling, even if you are you know, a, a designated Christian leader is to go and get, get the help. And uh, don't let your pride get in the way of getting that help. Remember that uh, biblical counseling is just an intensive discipleship, and we all need discipleship through all the days that we live, no matter what our role is in the church and the Christian uh, community. So define the concepts of presentation level and performance level. Use a case history in which you were the counselor to show the necessity for moving from the presentation level to the performance level. Now, one of the questions that often get when I guide people through this question, well, I've never counseled anyone, and this has come up. And so uh, it is okay to invent an appropriate case history. Just make a note and say that I didn't have, I don't have a, situation where this has happened yet in my uh, counseling experience. But uh, here, here's a, a case history that I've thought through that I think hopefully illustrates that, you know, I understand the difference between presentation level and performance level. So let's talk through it a little bit. And uh, uh, basically, counselors will often come to see a counselor due to a certain problem that they believe is the main culprit or what they want help for. And you'll be able to, that's what they're coming for is this, this presentation. You know, we have this problem and then you'll be able to see that uh, the real level is in the performance level. And then we'll, in the next questions, we'll even go lower than that. And th this is a real life example. It did not happen here. Grace Fellowship Church happened where I was. And uh, once a woman was brought to see me that was severely grief-stricken because an affair she was having was over. Basically, what happened? This lady was in a ladies' Bible study group, and uh, I forget where they did it, what morning of the week. And I remember her ladies' Bible study leader bringing her to my office uh, because this lady was just uncontrollably crying uh, during the ladies' Bible study. So the leader went up, asked her what was going on, and so uh, basically talking to her, she was, she was really grief-stricken that, uh, uh, the, that the, her lover in this affair had told her, you know, it's, it's over. Her lover had told her it was over, and she couldn't stop crying hysterically. Uh, her, her husband was still going to be out of town for a few more days, so God had given us some time to work through the real issues. 
Um, I didn't know this lady beforehand. I knew, I didn't know her husband, but I knew of her husband. Her hus- husband was the, one of the a major uh, uh, psychologists with a good reputation in town. Uh, and uh, he was not a believer. She was supposed to believe her and was attending our church. And in her mind, I mean, she was, this was really what was in her mind. In her mind, her problem was her overwhelming grief of being rejected by her lover. This is what was presented to me as her problem and what she wanted fixed. I mean, as, as bizarre as it would seem, and uh, as empathy plays, uh, all, you know, even the, even, the small, even the lady Bible study leader sort of wanted me to help in getting this, this, this lover to reconsider. You know, it's just crazy, you know? Uh, uh, and, and you sort of feel badly for this person who's crying, and they tell, tell you about a soulmate and all these kind of things. And my husband's a nice guy, but he really never understood me and all this. Uh, and, uh, but when it happens to you right in front, you'll be amazed at what, how, where your emotions go, and you have to be uh, very uh, careful. So this is what presented me as her problem, what she wanted to fix. Initially, she would have been most satisfied with my service if I could have changed her lover's mind so the two of them could run off to a distant land together or at least the next town over, you know, so they could, you know, continue with uh, their relationship. This, this lady said, I've never been as happy in my life, fulfilled, and so forth. This would have taken care of her presentation problem, the type of grief that she was having. Now, um, uh, uh, fortunately, I was, I was not persuaded by the crocodile t- tears and so forth. Uh, yes, her presenting problem was grief. She just was, couldn't function, barely get herself dressed and to, uh, to Bible study. And just actually, uh, she could not see how life could really continue. You know, she was at, at, that, at that point. Uh, but the cause of her own grief and now the sorrow of many others was her performance problem. Her performance problem was she was committing adultery and that this was causing all kinds of problems. You know, if you're committing adultery and you have a halfway alert spouse, you know, there's going to have to be tons of lying uh, about, you know, how you're spending time, what you're doing, and uh, so forth. So... Our time needed to be spent dealing with her adultery in such a way that she would be moved before God to godly sorrow over her unfaithfulness, which in turn would lead to true repentance and forgiveness. So let's take a moment and look at uh, 2 Corinthians uh, 7.10 together. All right. Now, godly sorrow... 2 Corinthians 7.10, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. This lady was certainly sorrowful. But uh, which sorrow did she have? Did she have a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow? And so it's, it's easy in this case. So, of course, I've picked a, sort of an extreme one to sort of, sort of help us in, in seeing it. But this is an extreme case, and she had a worldly sorrow. And as the scriptures rightly say, it's not just that we're sorrowful, 
But it makes all the difference what kind of sorrow we have. The worldly sorrow brings a death. That doesn't mean a person's going to keel over with a heart attack right then, but it does mean death in this sense is a separation from God. And certainly her uh, performance of life, of the adultery, is separating her from God. And so you want to work with a person and move them to the godly sorrow. And often this will happen. And even I was just with the folks I've just been working with, uh, you know, had to, when we were going through this verse, these verses, I, this, is, this is a key verse that I always use in counseling uh, and explaining it, is to say myself, when I sin, often I will start with more of a worldly sorrow. Okay, let's say I, sinned, I, I, I said something to Beth and that was inappropriate. Well, I'm not immediately uh, going often to recognize that what I said was uh, harsh to her, that it was inconsiderate, that it was uh, so prideful. What's first going to probably come to my mind, oh boy, that was a dumb thing to say, Ken. That sort of ruined the evening. You know, that's more on the worldly side. But then, uh, fortunately, with the spirit working, you know, I and us and our counselee, we don't stay just at the worldly point. We want to move to the, to the godly point. Take an example of someone who is, uh, a man has been looking at pornography on their work computer. Well, the IT department checks those things and sees, wow, this guy has a history and it's a long history and the boss walks in with a box, says, put your things in a box, you are out of here. And they got a lot of sorrow uh, about it. And uh, their sorrow is a lot of times, well, I, I am sorrowful because I lost my job. They're not so much sorrowful about the sin that they are doing against their spouse if they're married, the sin that they've been doing as a witness of Christ, the sin of not being uh, looking for their fulfillment in the ways that God has supplied that and have taken these means, and so forth. So that's what you want to help someone. Once you get, they'll come often with a performance, excuse me, with a presentation, move to the performance, and then help them in that, that sorrow have a uh, move from the worldly sorrow to a uh, godly type of sorrow. So let's look through the notes here and see what it has to say. This is a key verse here. And uh, uh, the key verse, 2 Corinthians 7.10, talks about how repentance, and yes, you have the sorrow, but it leaves, leaves no regret as you go through the steps of confession. So, uh, during our sessions, both the presentation problem and the performance level problem needed to have attention. If I just dealt with the performance problem, adultery solely, she would have thought me to be unloving, and she would have not heard what was being said to her with regard to her, her sin of adultery. Now, when I was kind to her, I wasn't kind in the, the kind in the sense of that I was endorsing her adultery. But I could be kind to her in that uh, she'd been lied to the, by this person. And it, it's tough when someone has lied, lied to you. And that... Uh, uh, and that uh, this person proved 
not to be faithful in their word. And uh, this person has treated you unkindly. This person has misled you thinking that they're going to leave their spouse and then uh, uh, start a new life over again with you. I can see where this would be very, very painful and that you were uh, drawn into this because of the a kindness that he was showing to you really when, you know, you can see he was really a rat in what he was, was doing and how he was using you. Uh, fortunately, uh, in God's kindness, uh, she did respond well and uh, very, very quickly uh, to the Word of God. Typically, um, based on Second Corinthians chapter, oh, is it? It's either First Corinthians six or Second Corinthians six, where it talks about um, if you're uh, practicing adultery, sexual immorality. I think it's First Corinthians six. It says you're not of the kingdom of God. And then also in Galatians 5, it lists a lot of sins like uh, adultery and greed, things like that. Uh, You're not of the kingdom of God. So um, all of us probably practice some some of those sins in that list. And that doesn't mean we're not of the kingdom of God. But if it's characteristic of your life, then we should have a wake-up call that you're not of the kingdom of God. Are there times that I'm greedy? Yes, there are times when I am greedy. Hopefully, as soon as I recognize it, I, uh, uh, I repent, ask for forgiveness, and uh, uh, try and do uh, what is right before God to put myself under his, his grace. Uh, but hopefully, those that know me closely those here on staff, the elders, friends of you that are even in this room, if they, knowing me, would not characterize me as a guilty person. Now, often, when somebody has been in the sin of adultery, there has to be uh, so much uh, planning to keep this going, so much rejection of what God has clearly said about adultery. Most times, if someone has been in a long-term adulterous relationship, it is going to be a good indicator that they are not a kingdom of God person. Uh, this was an unusual case here for me in that this, this lady uh, responded so quickly to, um, uh, you know, it was very off-the-cup rather immediate and uh, I'm sure not very polished and poor counseling, she immediately responded to the word of God so quickly that uh, I would say that, uh, and then continued to respond that she was a kingdom uh, person. And so it's just neat to see uh, this happen uh, before for your eyes. Yes, uh, she was hurt by the rejection uh, from her lover, but she realized that she had uh, greatly Sin by committing adultery. She sought God's and her husband's forgiveness. The husband responded in a much more honorable way than the wife had ever imagined, seeing people turn to God and his ways is always a delight. This case here, she was uh, part of her grief also was this person has uh, rejected me that I thought was going to be my soulmate for life. And uh, uh, if my husband ever finds out about it, 
Okay, he's going to divorce me, and I'm out on the street. So, uh, and don't have anybody, don't have anything. So as we worked through it, uh, her husband was not a believer. Uh, and uh, like I said, I didn't know him. Uh, we invited him in, and uh, uh, I had her uh, uh, tell her husband, you know, what had been going on while... Uh, I was in the room and her lady Bible study leader. And uh, just worked through it. Uh, he was uh, uh, radically shaken, but uh, he, uh, as far as I know, he didn't come to Christ, but he, he responded in a very gracious way and was very thankful for you know, the church's role in their life. And then uh, uh, one of the other ladies you know, continued the counseling with her and uh, helped her to really turn her heart toward home and to uh, really love her, her husband who uh, wasn't a believer, but uh, in her stage of life and where he had placed her, that uh, she could make steps in loving, loving him. So it was great uh, to see that happen. So that's the difference there between people coming with a presentation and then often it's radically different what you need to to work with and to be able to to recognize that. Lynn, did you have a question? Um, I did. Um, on both question 9 and 10, it tells us that we need to use a case history in which we were the counselor. Yeah. So does that have to be a formal documented? No, no, you can, you, you can make it up. Just tell them you're making it up. Making it, make it up. Yeah, say so I haven't really had this situation happen. So uh, this is a makeup one. But uh, I think that it, it hopefully will illustrate that I understand the difference between, you know, those sort of things. Yeah, so, hey, Roger. What about with our kids or something, how we've dealt with issues? With sure, parents? yeah, it doesn't have it's to not be. a formal setting. But. Absolutely, yeah, it can be with your uh, uh, children, and it certainly does not have to be any, uh, you know, formal type of setting or just a, could be, you know, your kids, recognition where someone's talking to you about, uh, they're really talking to you about this issue, but as you get into it, uh, there's, it's, it's much different, and it's, it's not so much what someone else, typically it's, they come to you and it's, it's, it's they're bringing you this, uh, this problem, and it's something that someone else has done to them. Okay, this lady, what, what her problem is that this guy has, has rejected me. Well, the real problem is her performance. Her performance is that she has been engaging in adultery, which is a sin, and this is what's really caused her real grief. So usually the presentation is most people will come not saying, I'm a grave sinner, this is what you need to help me with. They will come with, I'm the, this person is doing these terrible things to me, and... Uh, uh, I'd like actually your listening ear to agree with me how terrible this person is and give me some ideas of how I can, you know, get this person straightened out. So, Linda. I'm sorry, again, but I just wondered, um, how would you deal if somebody comes to you saying that they, somebody else is doing something against them and they are very fearful? So that's all you know. They're just afraid of the other people. Okay. Uh, how do you deal with that? Okay. Well, you, you spent a lot of time gathering data to see uh, if the fear is, is founded, 
you know, is it, is it really, are they, uh, a common thing is the, uh, we, we do a lot of things based on what people will think of us, you know, uh, and uh, that creates all kinds of inappropriate performance, uh, trying always to get this person to like me and this and that. But if a person really is in a, a dangerous, you know, fearful position, uh, and typically that happens with ladies. You know, I've done a lot of counseling. I have never, fortunately, I have never had a, once a person, once a lady has, uh, uh, or has come under my, I don't counsel ladies here, but when I was overseeing the counseling center here, in God's kindness, I've never had a lady uh, abused under uh, my care directly or indirectly. I really care for ladies. Um, so, I mean, I've had a lot of times where I've asked ladies, I want you to pack a bag, and if something happens, I want you to get out of that house, you know, right away. If things are happening, um, we will uh, have them uh, uh, call the police. We're very grateful for the police. Just give you an example how helpful uh, the police are. Um, oh, I don't know. It was probably about this time last year. Uh, happened in my own house, Okay. Here at the church, I need to dial nine to get an outside line. So I was at home, and uh, I was making a long-distance call. It was a, a 1-800 number, so I was thinking I'm at work. So I hit nine, then one. I realized what I had done. My finger came down and hit one again. I hung up. So I didn't realize I had done the, the second one. And uh, all of a sudden, the phone rings back. And somebody's on the end saying, well, you just dialed 911. I didn't, but I figured, well, okay. They talked to me. I must have. I explained to them just my, you know, slippery finger and what had happened. And the uh, 911 operator said, uh, um, that's fine, but we'll be sending an officer over to your house to make sure everything is all right. Well, I, I don't need anybody to help me dial the phone. You know, I can, you know, I can dial the phone just this one time I misdial. So uh, the guy comes to the house, and uh, man, he was there immediately. So where my office is, uh, I can see him coming up the walk. So I go out. It was a nice day. I walk outside to greet him, and uh, we have a nice chat. I explain to him my role here at church, and uh, this church. We didn't know each other personally. But uh, our, our church, through counseling and other problems like, like uh, protecting women, protecting children, sexual abuse, we've gotten a great name in the community. And, uh, but still, he was not going to leave the, our property until I let him into the house and he could speak and look at Beth to make sure she was okay. And so I am greatly, greatly appreciative of that kind of help. And if we need that help, uh, often I will have women who are in fearful situations where there truly is fear of having, uh, that they should be doing things. And we will encourage them. You know, if this happens, I mean, even if they start, even if they don't hit you, but uh, they wing a chair across the room and get out of hand, you need to call the authority. They're the ones that wield the sword. I don't wield the sword. You need people who are trained in this and can help. And there is something about when those blue and red lights flash outside that wake men up to what they are doing is not appropriate. And so I'm very thankful for Mike and other people 
going into those domestic abuse situations where they, you know, sometimes, okay, it's just a couple arguing, but other times, you know, they put their life at uh, risk because I don't, I don't know if the statistic is still true. Is it still true that most murders are people who know each other? Yeah, you know, it's, it's not it's killed in a robbery. It's people who know each other who kill one another. And so a policeman walks into that setting. But we have, fortunately, um, we have that kind of perfection. And so we have to look and see why is the person fearful. If they have a true me reason for it, then we want to help protect. So that is, a, that is a, a place where, as a counselor, you will be involved in helping in the circumstances. You're not necessarily going to be able to change that uh, spouse, uh, so forth. But I can tell you, in all the counseling and cases that I've been involved in, either uh, directly or overseeing, the only case where I've had someone critically uh, hurt in a domestic abuse situation was that the woman actually stabbed the husband with the knife. Fortunately, he had a leather jacket on, messed up his shoulder, but he was stabbed in the back uh, in that case there. So but that, was, that, was a, that was a case that was, there was a lot of sin going on. There was a psychotic situation and all. But uh, uh, he recovered and uh, he responded, he responded real well. So, yeah, so, good, Roger. Yeah. Synonymous with integration. Yeah. That's, word I've heard more commonly. Is that the That's right. That's a great point. Yeah, they talk about integration. You're trying to integrate. You're trying to bring uh, all this good truth that has, uh, you know, come from psychology and psychiatry uh, together with biblical truth. So, thank you. That's, those are great, great points to help us uh, through there. Now, this this whole aspect of uh, what problems we're dealing with. The whole last conference that ACBC had in California dealt with mental illness and biblical counseling. And so um, there are a lot of things that are classic. There's a, there's a book called uh, uh, DSM. And DSM categorizes all uh, diseases and all. If you look at the DSM, uh, it it has a has a category for almost everything. You know, a child answering back in school and all these kinds of things that they would classify as diseases. We don't we don't call these diseases. What we call diseases are when there's pathological changes in a person. A person has a disease, or, you know, or a, pro- a problem that's medical when an, when an arm is broken. When a person has, uh, ele- uh, I just got my uh, blood work back from the, uh, uh, you know, uh, doctor. Get a wellness physical next week, so I, they put the results on my chart, and I got to look to see if my results was were in the normal range. And God's kindness, they they were. But if those results were outside the normal range, you know, I'll go see Don Price, and he'll say, Ken. You know, you might not feel like it, but you are a very sick individual here. But, you know, I don't think he's going to say that because uh, they were in the normal way. But there he would see there is a pathological change in what's happening. Now, there are pathological changes that happen in the brain that affect people. Alzheimer's, you might have seen, had a, 
a, a relative, an older one. It's tragic what happens to this very capable person and then uh, just what happens in their mind. Uh, uh, Parkinson's, the same sort of thing. There are definite changes in their mind. We, we know that those things are, are happening uh, there. And, uh, and then also, uh, like with Parkinson's, that also has a side effect of, of depression and, and so forth. And we'll talk about depression uh, later. And uh, so we have to be uh, careful there. Now, schizophrenia, uh, until very recently, they could not discover any pathological changes in a person's thinking. And schizophrenia, a lot of those people that you see uh, on the street and they're carrying their belongings in a street cart, you know, a lot of those people would be classified as schizophrenia. There wasn't any drawing their blood. Their blood would, you know, be within normals like ours. You know, X-ray of their brains typically would be the same. There, but there have, uh, there have been some studies of recent where they've been able to actually measure some front lobes of the brain of people who are uh, schizophrenic where there are definite changes in uh, the brain there. Now, it gets complicated because there maybe some of those do have definite changes in the brain. There are other people who have used symptoms and excuses like schizophrenia to get out of responsibilities in life. That's actually how Jay Adams got started. Jay Adams was, he was a smart guy, and uh, he loved people and wanted to help them. So he started on working on his PhD in psychology. So part of his assignment was to go to a state mental hospital. Back in the 60s, if you were schizophrenic, they locked you up. You didn't have the rights that you had today, and that you, you, know, you can only be locked up if, they, if you want to be. But if you don't want to be, you don't have to, to be there. And so these were all these people were in mental hospitals. He started working with these people, talking to them, and then sharing the gospel. You know, he's a very bold guy and talking to them, were you a believer and working through it. And he found a lot of these people, they really were no more nuts than he says he was. Uh, they just weren't obedient to God and relying on his grace. And so he saw just radical changes happen in these people's lives. And actually the same thing happened with David Paulson. David Paulson is very, very active. He's now head of CCF. David David was a very sensitive person, uh, not, not a believer until uh, he and I are about, he and I are the same age, uh, grew up in very similar environments, and uh, he got his undergraduate degree at Harvard, and uh, uh, he, uh, he could have done a lot of things from Harvard to make a lot of money, but he basically became a, uh, a social worker and worked in mental hospitals he came to faith when he was around 27 years old, started sharing his, his faith in the hospital, and the same thing sort of started happening. These people who were written off, a lot of great things started happening in their lives, and he moved toward uh, a biblical counseling uh, understanding. So this is something we're still wrestling with, uh, with and biblical counseling, is uh, not saying that all these things that they say out there that are these uh, mental illnesses. Some of them really are mental illnesses, and we need to be very sensitive. Now, even if somebody is truly schizophrenic, they are having psychotic episodes. All right. 
Some of them may be that the, the, the most they ever get to is that they are pushing the shopping cart around. But there are degrees in schizophrenia that you may be able to help this person be able to not live their whole life categorized as someone that's schizophrenic and not use the big S as an excuse for everything and see that, ooh, this is a way I can get out of it. I can get out of working. This is a way I can get out of these responsibilities, but help them really live their life. And still, they might have some psychotic episodes, but even as they have that psychotic episode, you help them live their life to the fullness. It's like Johnny Erickson Tata. You know, she has an extreme difficulty being a paraplegic, but she wants to still live her life to the fullest. She has a definite medical condition, but she is living in victory, even though struggling with tendencies to fall into extreme sadness and grief because of her physical limitations. People can even have mental illness, but not be a total definer of who they are. They can still be shining lights and help them uh, through handle their psychotic episodes better and even live responsible lives in the community of faith. Okay. Does that help?